Gracious God in heaven, we do wonder at the cross this morning. Lord, we are struck by your love that was displayed in such horrible suffering and death that our sins caused. You've called us out of darkness and death. You've called us to die to ourselves and to the world that we might truly live. We praise you for sending your Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to comfort and to help us as we struggle to die to pride and to worldliness. Lord God, we pray for those who are in Christ Jesus that will or who are gathering at Wapato Valley this morning. We pray for the gospel to be clearly and accurately preached and that your people would grow and be strengthened in faith. In the glorious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. If you would open your Bible to Revelation chapter 6, this morning uh, we will examine and be examined by verses 1 through 8. We will begin with a reading of the text, followed by praying for the Holy Spirit's help, and finally we will dissect the text, making applications as we go. So as you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out to conquer and conquering. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse went out and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And there was something like the voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is God's word. You may be seated. To our God who is on the throne of heaven, through the Lamb who was slain for our sin, we ask for grace and the Holy Spirit that you would illuminate the passage to our minds for our understanding, that you, Lord, would, by your Holy Spirit, inflame our hearts in love to the one who loved us, to the one who freed us from our sin, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would engage our will to rejoice in obedience through these evil days, trusting that you are working all things for good to those who are called according to your purpose. In the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. The big question this morning, well, first, before we get started on the big question, <laughs> uh, I got to tell you, as I was approaching this text uh, Monday morning, so they're going, oh my goodness, there is no way I can preach this passage. There's no way I can find... Uh, insight as to how to communicate what is going on here. Uh, but praise God, through much prayer, uh, I think that he has posed the right questions of my own heart and the right things that he wants to deliver to his church this morning. 
So the big question that I came up with this week was, what is going on in this age that we live in? And the answer and the conclusion that I came to from reading this passage is exactly what is supposed to happen. The big question, what's going on in this age that we live in? And the answer is exactly what is supposed to happen. A question that is often asked by the cynic and by the critic of our Christian faith is this. If God is good, then why is there evil? Why is there oppression, war, famine, disease, and death? See, even to the critic, even to the the one who is cynical, they would say that some things are inherently evil. If God is good, then why are these, these inherent evils going on? My hope is today that as we unfold this text, we'll be equipped to give the cynic and the critic a solid, helpful answer. Secondly, uh, my prayer is that the Christian would take comfort, strength, and enduring faith as we come to understand God's word and God's good for us through these evil days that we live in. See, difficulty comes to the just and the unjust alike. When Christ returns to the, to the faithful, uh, they will bear the marks of Christ's suffering for righteousness and the glory of God. But the ungodly and the unfaithful will eternally bear the marks of their own sin, and they will receive in themselves the justice of God. Heaven awaits those who obey Him in these evil days. Heaven awaits those who obey Christ in these evil days. Hell is the destiny for those who deny or defy the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a dividing line. And so what for us? Philippians 2 tells us this, So then, my beloved, just as if you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now how much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or argument so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above approach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights of the world, holding firmly the word of life so that in the day of Christ I can take pride because I did not run in vain or labor in vain. These days we can declare boldly by looking around that we live in evil times. But we can confidently say this, that we don't run in vain. We don't labor in vain for the cause of Christ. And we must answer five questions as Christians and as the church in these days of evil and in these days of suffering. We must answer these questions. Are you, are we faithful to the Lord's instruction? Are you, are we great commission saints or are we great omission ain'ts? Are you, are we holding fast to the teaching of Christ? Are we holding fast to the trustworthy word as it is taught? Or has false teaching and false doctrine become the doctrine of the church? Have you, have we given in to the pressures um, of the world? Or have we given in to fear of persecution? Are you, are we living in pursuit of practical holiness? Or have you, or have we become duplicitous? That is living in both sides. Living 
speaking one way, living another? Or worse, have we compromised so much that we are indistinguishable from the world? So in every age that we look at and looking at this passage and looking at end times stuff, in every age, people sort of exegete the days that they live in. That is, that they they divide their days, they interpret their days, and then it influences the way that they interpret this passage and interpret the whole of the book of Revelation. See, they, they come to this conclusion that the book of Revelation is going to come to its consummation in their own time. In the late first century, as this one was written, to those whom the apostle addressed in the churches around Asia Minor, they concluded that the stark opposition to Christianity and to their faith under the hand of the Roman emperor Domitian uh, meant that that which is described here in chapter 6 and following had already begun to take place. This was their assumption. In the 16th century, the Puritans, they, they came to the same conclusion about the days that they were living in. C.S. Lewis, during World War II, <laughs> drew the same conclusion about the, the early to mid-20th century as World War II is going on around him, right? He's assuming that this is already taking place. Well, when we look at our text, we will see that what is coming is evil conquest from tyrannical leaders, atrocious warfare, famine, disease, and conditions that lead to comprehensive death. And when we look today at humanity, this is how it's been. This is how it's been from the first coming of Christ until now. We will conclude this, that that the, the people in AD 96, as they were under this rule of Domitian and they were seeing tyrannical leaders, economic oppression, warfare at every turn, when they look at this text and they said, this is happening, they're right. When the 16th century Puritans looked at what was going on in this passage and they concluded that this is happening in our time, they were right. When C.S. Lewis looked at it during World War II and he saw these things taking place, he said his conclusion, it was correct. When we look at our times, our conclusion is that yes, this is happening in our time. That this is characteristic of every age. This is characteristic of every age, but it began as these seals were unfolded. It began even before. This is a scene that's actually taking place before chapter 1. This is taking place before chapter 1. When you look at in chronologically, right? Not biblically, but chronologically. In chapter 1, we see Jesus glorified, you know, with eyes of a flame of fire and wool and white and pure. When we look at this in this passage, this is the bloodied lamb who was slain for sin. This is, this is Jesus dead and resurrected, standing as the one slain. And in that moment, this is taking place, this unfolding of history, that Jesus Christ at that moment had the power, the authority given to him from the throne of God because of his death to execute the decrees of God. And he began immediately unfolding the decrees of God in that moment. And these things have been that way since then, and they'll stay that way until he comes back. And so when we think about these things, they characterize the world, our world, until Christ returns. 
right? We should not conclude, as the humanists do, that we are getting better and better and better. And that somehow by human coming, uh, human cunning and, and by ingenuity, we will continue to prove, improve until all of these evils are eradicated. These things will characterize our world until Christ returns, until the full number of those who are called by faith and all the kingdoms and all the rules, rulers come into submission to Christ. So it seems like bad news, but it's not. It's really, really great news, and we'll see that. That Christ is sovereignly in control of all of the evils that are going on in the world now. And he has been ever since he started unfolding God's plan and God's decree. He was sovereignly in control of it. Evil only goes as far as the Lord allows it. God is in control of all things. See, the death of Christ accomplished so much. Sometimes as we think about the death of Christ, we only think about it in selfish terms. We think about it, that the death of Christ accomplished salvation for me. Yes, it did. The resurrection of Christ brought me new life. Yes, it did. But the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, he said, he says in Matthew at the end of of the book there, he says that all authority has been given to me on in heaven and on earth. And that means all. That means authority over evil, authority over the devil. He is in charge. Even though we look around and we see all this evil, Christ is the one who is in charge. And it is by the decree of God that it happens. But it's limited. It is limited by Christ. He limits all of this evil, but he uses it for two, two very, very important purposes. And we're going to see that as we dive further into this passage. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. So last week in our study, we concluded that the things that are uh, and the things that were uh, sometimes are blended into the things which as they are right now. The things that were is that Jesus Christ died and purchased a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. A a new covenant was established in Jesus' death on a cross, a forever covenant. Now the host of heaven declares that Christ and his death had crowned him with worth, with power, with the riches of heaven, with the wisdom of God, of the might and honor of him who sits on the throne, and the glory and the blessing that belongs only to God is now in the hand of Jesus Christ, and he is Lord. He is declared by his inner circle in the host of heaven. It is already and it is not yet on earth as it is in heaven, but his rule and his authority and his kingdom are ever expanding. It was established in Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and listen to this, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. When did Jesus become the ruler of the kings of the earth? While he was slain. Victory. Jesus had victory and all authority was given to him as he died for our sin. Jesus Christ received power to rule, power to reign over the kings of the earth upon his death and his resurrection. It is already and it is not yet at the same time completed. Things will be the way that they are until all things are put under subjection to King Jesus and then the end will come. Jesus' death and resurrection defeated Satan, and from the throne of God, Jesus received power and authority 
to use the forces of Satan's evil, the things that Satan wants to do for bad, to bring about the decrees of God contained in the book. When we think about uh, the second half of verse 1, I heard one of the four angels of the creature saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The first thing I want us to notice is that who is summoning the evil forces? It is those creatures who are in the inner circle of the throne of God, who have eyes in front of them and eyes behind them and six wings. And with two of those wings, they fly to carry out the will of God. It is those who are carrying out the will of him who sits on the throne who tell the horsemen to come. Come. It's a command from the throne of God. Come. It is God who calls them to carry out their plan. God is in control of that plan. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. See, this is the answer, one of the first answers that we can give the cynic and the critic as they ask this question. If God is good, then why is there evil, tyrannical governments, needless war, uh, widespread famine, um, disease, and mass death? These things are evil. We can answer back, for sure, these things are evil, but God is sovereign over them. And God is working them out for the good of those who love Him and those who are called according to His purpose. You see, what we would declare to the world is this, and I hope that we will declare this, God is not hamstrung by evil. You know, sometimes when we think about good and evil, we think that they're on equal planes. That somehow, Satan and God are on equal playing fields and they're fighting this battle and it's only like 51 to 49, right? God's winning, but it's 51 to 49. It's 90-10. It's 90-10. God is in control of evil, in control of Satan. God has him chained. He goes only as far as the chain will let him go. It's like a dog when you put a, a dog on a chain, right? And and you, you, I did this as a kid. Okay, I hate to admit this, but you know, I tried to stir it up so it would get angry and come at me. And then I would know just how far I could go to get the dog to get out there. And then the dog would stop. See, the dog was chained. The dog was under control. Uh, bad thing would have been if that chain had broken. But anyway, I digress. So this this idea that that God and Satan are in some equal plane is nonsense. Especially when we think about the evil days that we live in. If God is sovereign, God is sovereign over everything. And His Christ is now been given this power and authority and sovereignty over everything. You, me, evil. Satan, he is in control. He is in control. God is not hamstrung by evil. By decree, God is sovereign over evil. You see, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they desired knowledge of good and evil. But they were unable to use evil for God's good purposes, weren't they? They were incapable. The lie of the serpent was, you will be like God in knowing good and evil. See, Satan says to, to these uh, our first parents, he says, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be able to use both good and evil 
for good purposes. You'll have knowledge of those things. You'll be able to do that. You'll be like God. There's a problem with that lie. Humanity cannot be God. God is God. God is other. God is the only one who can take evil and use it for good. Because he is fully good. He is other than his creation. We can be like him in reflection, but we cannot be him. We have to get that. We can be like him, but it's only in reflection. We cannot be him. God remains other than us. And by decree and providence, God has authority and power to decree the evil works of Satan so that he accomplishes his good and holy purposes. The London Baptist Confession of Faith divines summarize this, they summarize this truth in this way. From eternity, God, with perfect wisdom and by his own free will, decreed everything that happens. Though God is sovereign over evil, at the same time, God is not the author of sin and does not have fellowship with anyone in their sin. God's decree demonstrates his wisdom in directing everything and his power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. God knows everything that could possibly happen. It should be recognized that God did not decree anything because he looked down the tunnel of time and learned anything. God has never looked down the tunnel of time and come to some conclusion. He's not dependent upon other things to accomplish his decree. He's not dependent on other means. He uses other means, but he's not dependent upon them. They don't change his course of direction because God is unchangeable, immutable. He does as he decrees always. From eternity, this has been God's plan. God knows everything that could possibly happen. God, who is the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, he upholds, he directs, he determines, and he governs all creatures and things. He is undefined. That is, he, by his perfectly wise uh, and holy providence for the purpose for which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free, unchangeable counsel of his own will, he accomplishes these things. All of this results in the praise for glory of his wisdom, of his power, of his justice, of his infinite goodness, and his mercy. Nothing happens by chance, nor apart from his providence. The Father, having given authority and power to Christ, uses the evil works of Satan to accomplish and execute the decrees of God in this present age. Satan is limited by the sovereign hand of Christ. I have a couple examples. As I was studying this passage, you know what, what, what book came flooding into my mind and heart? The book of Job. As a clear example that God is in charge of all things. That God is in charge of even the evil that comes about. In Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 7 says, The Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does uh, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But reach out with your hand and now touch all that he has and he will certainly uh, curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Catch this. Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not reach out and put your hand upon him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Who's in charge of Satan? 
Who controls the evil? Who is sovereignly in charge of all evil things done for God's good and holy right purpose. It is God who is in charge. In in chapter 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That is, that's just like these these uh, these cherubim with the wings saying, Come! Satan also came among them to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered, the Lord said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around it, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds firm to his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give his life for. However, reach out with your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. The devil could only go so far. So the answer I have for our cynic and uh, critic's question about a good God allowing evil to continue in the world is also that evil is only permitted to go as far as it serves God's twofold purpose. It was always good. The twofold purpose of evil, the twofold purpose of suffering is that it serves to purify the people of God and that it judges the ungodly. The evil of today and the future judgment is for those who fail to repent and surrender to the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. Jesus' death was sufficient to satisfy God's wrath for sin. Those he loves believe. Those who believe will be eternally preserved. Those who reject Christ will receive in themselves what their sin deserved. We will either bear the marks of Christ leading to our sanctification and eternal life, or we will bear the marks of our own rebellion. You see, even uh, Ezekiel, when it it talks about uh, the evil that was in the world at their time, Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon it. They Then they will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions, for you will know that I have not done in vain whatever I did to it declares the Lord. You see, there's two things going on, right? Israel was being punished as a whole for their idolatry. And in that idolatry, it was sorting out. It was a sorting out of those who would serve God faithfully, those who would change and repent, and those who received the judgment that they deserve. The point of Ezekiel 14 is that all the Israelites will suffer persecution because of their rampant idolatry. But the purpose of the trials is to punish the majority of the nation because of its sin and to simultaneously purify the righteous remnant by testing their faith. God declares authority over evil, not only in the prophets, but he also declares his authority over evil according to the law. In Leviticus 26, it says this, it, If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break down your pride of power. I also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. 
If you then act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your roads lie deserted. And if these, and if in these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will bring upon you a sword, which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, will, I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sin. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense and altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will waste, uh, lay waste your cities as well as will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your Lord, as your land becomes desolate and your cities become a waste. See, this idea of this, these, these four evils, this evil that is coming, because even in that day, would you not say that pestilence is evil? That death and rap and famine and economic disparity are evil. They were evil in that time. And God says, I'm in charge of this evil. This evil is to punish the ungodly. But he's in charge of it. He is in control of it. And it is meant to purify and cause a person to come to repentance. So it has this two purpose, judging the ungodly and calling the believers to repentance and to faith. The four evils that characterize this age that we live in from Christ's death until his second coming is this, evil tyrants who are grasping for power to subjugate people underneath them economically, militarily, physically, or spiritually. Does that sound like the age that we live in? That there are evil tyrants around the world trying to subjugate all people underneath them? Either doing it through uh, economic uh, hardship, through military force, spiritual coercion, whatever it might be. The great day of that wrath has come and who is able to stand? That is the question. That's a question of the age. Who is able to stand in this evil world that God has decreed to accomplish His good purpose, that is to judge the ungodly and to purify His saints? Who is it that can stand? Who is it that the pu- is the purified Saint. That's the question. We should notice here the first horseman. I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. The first horseman is on a white horse and he has a bow to conquer and to crown himself and to declare himself royalty. This horse represents those kings of the earth that have a desire to have dominion over people, dominion over nations. And see, Satan comes disguised as a force for good. He comes in white. But notice that he's limited to an imitation. He's limited here to an imitation. He's one who is on a white horse and he has a bow and a single crown. He's an imitation. 
He's an imitation of the true king. Let's compare the evil horseman to Christ, the one true sovereign king. In Revelation 19, verse 11, it says, I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head, on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one else knows except for himself. He's clothed with a white robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, and with it that he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, And he, as he treads, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice the difference between the one on the white horse in chapter 6 and the one on the white horse in chapter 19. The first one is an imitation, a pale, sorry comparison. A single crown. Jesus having diadems, multiple jeweled crown. He has a bow. Jesus comes with a sword. Satan shoots, shoots a bow firing darts at the people of God, right? But our Christ, the one who died for us, freeing us from our sin, is bringing a sword. He's bringing a sword. The opening of the seals comes in rapid succession. The first seal is opened, and the horseman is summoned. The second is summoned as the first is being described. Like the evil that came upon Job in chapter 1, for example. As we, as we see these, these seals being unfolded, they are in rapid succession. They're described one at a time. Bam! 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 It reminded me again of Job. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, a messenger had come to Job, evil number 1. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians attacked and took them. They slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to, to tell you. Evil number two, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Evil number three, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Evil number four, while he was still speaking, also came uh, and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is the picture. This is, this is a description of the picture of Jesus unfolding the decrees of God. Bam, bam, bam. While he's yet describing, here comes another, and here comes another, and here comes another. That's why these things are happening all the time at the same time around us. These things are constantly happening, happening at the same time. While the conquering tyrant is being revealed, the second seal is broken, and the second hor horseman on a red horse, he is summoned. When he broke the seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. 
The Synoptic Gospels, that is Mark, Matthew, and Luke, they all agree about the evil days before Christ's return. Luke 21, 9 through 12 says this, When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying, The nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and you will, and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues, from the synagogues to the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And he goes on in 21, 25 through 26. There will be signs in, in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, uh, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Evil forces are aimed at robbing the people of God peace. In times of war, the Christian who is faithful has the peace of God. And peace with God in Christ Jesus and in his death and resurrection. Satan's goal is to seek whom he may devour. And his question is, who might I rob of peace? Satan declares about Job. Take these things from him. Touch him in this way and he'll curse you to your face. You've protected him. Take away your protection and he will curse you to your face. And Satan is still doing the same. He's got the same playbook over and over and over again. And he can only do those things. He can only do those things because God is sovereign over even that. And he does these things over and over again, trying to rob God's people of peace. But God is using them for those two purposes. That is to judge the ungodly and to sanctify the saints. Evil forces are aimed at robbing us of peace. The great day of their wrath has come. And the question is, who is able to stand? And while the war-mongering horseman is being revealed, the black horse and his rider are summoned. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And there's something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought about uh, oh, Thomas Aqu uh, Akempis, who says, times of adversity don't make a person, they just reveal what sort he is. Right? Economic oppression here is evil. What is going on here? Is that denarius was a day's wage. A quart of wheat was a day's wage. And a quart, a quart of wheat provided about 1,500 calories. Okay. So the 1,500 calories would have been sufficient to sustain one human being for one day. But that person had to work all day just to sustain himself. Never mind any other sort of things that he might need, right? He's got just enough to sustain him with food for one day. Sufficient calories for one person for one day. But if you had a wife and a child to feed, you could forego getting wheat and get barley. Because barley was enough for three people or one person for three days. But it still took a whole day's wage to get enough barley to feed your family for one day. And all you did is labor to eat. That is the existence of that person. That's what's being described here. Enough labor for one day 
for one day's food, and that's all you could do is work to eat. The point here is that the price was so high that one could barely be sustained, and one could only work for food. Um, notice, though, that the expensive items, the oil and the wine, they're readily available. Only the rich could afford luxury and abundance, while the poor could barely survive. Don't touch the oil and don't touch the wine. This is an evil in the world. That those who could afford things, and the things that they would do in these evil times is they would cut down wheat fields, cut down barley fields to plant grapes, shortening the supply. It's, it's economic tyranny to do such a thing. I was talking with Marcus this morning about the very fact of where we live in this environment. If grapes could grow in fields where wheat are growing right now, what do you think would soon happen? What would soon happen is we would no longer be producing wheat on those fields, we'd be producing grapes. Those things which sustain life would be given away so that the rich could get richer and the poor could get poorer. This is an evil that is of our time and it is continuing. The rich could afford this luxury and abundance while poor people could barely survive. In the days of the early church, see, Christians who would refuse to work on the Sabbath, they would refuse to partake in idol-worshipping trade guilds, they struggled to find a means to sustain themselves financially, didn't they? Economic oppression. In order to make enough money, you've got to join the guild. Well, I can't join the guild because the guild are a bunch of idol worshipers. So because of their faith, they don't go, but they're oppressed. They're economically uh, under the tyranny of the trade guilds. If we take America out of our equation and we look at the economic condition of Christians around the world, economic, is the, economic hardship is the norm for most people. And it's particularly for those who refuse to violate the command of Scripture to gather on the Lord's Day and to set it aside for the worship of God. Because in those nations where they can't get enough food to eat on a regular basis, where they are working just like this is describing, they're working enough to get enough money to feed themselves for one day, and that's all they've got time for. And they have to go to work tomorrow or they don't eat. And think about this, if they want to set aside a day for Sabbath honoring of their God, what do they do? What will they do for that day? This is going on all around the world. And we in America, uh, we don't understand that, I don't think. Social structures favor financially those who deny Christ, don't they? Our social and financial structures, they favor those who would deny Christ. Taxes from governments heavily favor the rich while oppressing and limiting the resources of the masses. Again, I say, take America out of the equation. Generally, this is the condition of the world, and it has been since the time of Christ and will be until his return. The great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? While this economic oppressor is being revealed, the pale horse and his rider, they are summoned. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. 
I looked, and behold, an ashen horse who sat on it had the name of death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with a famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. I want us to notice this. Death was pervasive in this evil, but think about this. It's not complete. Satan has no power to completely destroy everyone. Only a fourth. He's limited. He's limited by the hand of God. By what God, what God uses to accomplish His good purposes. Death has reigned from Adam uh, until now. The evil writer is bringing about death by sword. He's bringing about death by violence, death by hunger, death by disease, death by wild beasts. That is, death that are plagues that are brought to us through animals, right? Like bats in China in a wet market. It is an evil. It is an evil. But Jesus Christ is in control. What should we have learned from the pandemic? What should we have learned the purpose of God was in it? Two things. The same two things that have been going on since Christ's ascension to the throne. Since Christ died for our sin. The same two things. The same two purposes of evil and suffering. Those two purposes are this. That it is a judgment against the ungodly. And it is a means of God, a decree of God to purify for himself a people for himself. The same two purposes. Evil has a purpose and it's good for us. I hate, I hate it seems weird to say that. The evil that is in the world is good for us in that it serves God's purposes and his glory for us. It serves to do what it is that God wants to do in us. He wants to change us, to transform us, to help us, to make us grow more in our trust and our faith in Him. To purify for Himself a people. In hard times, when hard times come to you, do you not reflect upon your own self and your own sin sinfulness? I know for me, in the hardest times is when I do the most reflecting about my own character and my own nature. When hardship comes to me, I fall on my face and I say, God, what wicked way is there in me? I become fully aware that the things that are coming to me are for my good. That there's something that God wants to do in me. That He wants to change me. He wants to transform me. He wants me to live more fully for Him. Whatever it might be. This is what God is doing in those things. I want us to notice uh, what follows this evil in verse 8. It's Hades. What follows death is damnation and hell. Believers are not excluded from the folks who will die by violence, hunger, disease, and natural causes. They're not, they're not, they're not immune from that. But what follows is those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's not hell. It's not hell that follows death. It is eternal life in the presence of the Lamb who was slain, freeing us from uh, the eternal death that our sin deserved. Death produces in the follower of Christ life eternal. Even death, the evil of death produces good. It produces 
us in us eternal life with Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. So how now shall we live? The age that we live in has always been marked by evil conquests, by wars, by famine, by disease, and by death. These conditions will continue until Christ returns, having brought all things into submission to his rule. There's no political scheme. No leader will fully eradicate the conditions of our fallen world. That's where we get politics wrong, don't we? We think that somehow if we let the right guy, then all of this evil will go away. We kick the, we, we, if we elect the one who aligns most with our passions for good, we'll eradicate this problem. We just need to keep electing the right people. That's kind of the mentality of politics that has invaded kind of Christianity a little bit. Is that we side with the right people and the right people side with us and therefore they are our heroes because they are going to eradicate the evil that is in the world. Well, no political scheme or leader will fully eradicate the conditions of our fallen world. But we can and we should vote for leaders who might try to mitigate these issues. They will not be solved through human leadership. They will never be solved through human leadership. The great day of their wrath has come and who will be made to stand? So we pray in these evil days. What, what do we do? What does it matter? What, where do we go? So we pray. How long, O oh Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What does evil produce in the life of a believer while we live in this present evil age? What does evil produce in the life of a believer in this present evil age? Well, the forces of evil in the sovereign hand of Christ, Jesus, bring about the purification of his people. Titus 2, 13 and 14 says, Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. The forces of evil in the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ produces character that comports with the gospel. Romans 5. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. The forces of evil in the sovereign hand of God gives us a share in His holiness. Hebrews 12. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. For at the moment, all discipline seems to be unpleasant but painful. Yet, those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The forces of evil in the sovereign hand of Christ Jesus produces perfection. Consider it all joy. This is James. My brothers and sisters, when you enter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance, uh, let endurance have its perfect Result, so that you may perfect, be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The forces of evil in the sovereign hand of God and in the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ secures the promise of eternity. In James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Jesus has the authority to execute the plan of God while allowing evil to serve the purpose of sanctifying his people and bringing the ungodly to judgment. God is in control. 
Jesus Christ is in control of all things that are going on in this world, in this evil world. It is Christ who is in control. And His good purposes are being done through even those evil uh, things that are going on. And this is another reason why we should sing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I remember some time ago, uh, I was interviewing for a... um, pastoral position in another church. And one of the questions that they asked me was, we were talking about certain things, and somehow I said, I don't know what the topic was at that time, I said something about, I believe and trust in the sovereign hand of God in all things. That there is no surprises. That Christ is in charge. I believe 100% that Christ is in charge. So the question he posed to me is, what about a mom who has lost a daughter to death? How does the sovereignty of God do her any good? I thought for a moment. I said, very much so. Because if God was not serving his good purposes in the death of your daughter, then God's hands are are, are cuffed by evil and he can do nothing about it. He has no control over it. You're in a mess if God is not sovereign over the evil things that come to us. We are all in a mess if God is not in control of all of these things. If God is not using evil for his good purpose. And his good purpose is to sanctify us, to change us, to transform us, to instill in us Faith. And we can trust this and rejoice in this, that the ungodly get what's coming to them. And then we can rejoice in this. Thank God that I don't get what I deserve. I thank God that I don't get what my sin deserves. This evil should destroy me. But it will never destroy me, not even death. Because of Jesus Christ, who died to free me from my sin. This is glorious truth that God is sovereign even over evil.